The Boarding Pass is brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best deals on last-minute tickets. Did you know Winnipeg Jets ticket prices tend to drop right before the game starts? GameTime tracks ticket prices in real time from thousands of trusted sellers, then shows you all the best last-minute deals with prices up to 60% off. More than 12 million fans have downloaded the GameTime app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. One of the cool features about GameTime is that you can get in-rink panoramic seat view photos from every section, so you get to try out what your view is going to look like from the app before you purchase. So head to the App Store or Play Store now to download GameTime and score awesome deals on last-minute tickets. Welcome to the third episode of The Boarding Pass with The Athletic's Ken Weave and myself, Murad Atesh. Uh, if you've been at TheAthletic.com recently, you've seen a couple of headlines from Ken Weave talking about the Jets' blowout loss. Is that a cause for concern or just a one-off? And then the headline right after that is about the Winnipeg Jets' identity and how the Jets and Captain Blake Wheeler are still trying to find it. And that's the sort of combination you get after the team gives up 11 goals on back-to-back home games and, and starting to show a little bit of a struggle. Ken, uh, welcome to the show. I want to I ask you right off the hop, who are these guys? Do they have an identity? And what is it going to take to get there? Yeah, those are all uh, great questions, and I think there are questions the Jets themselves are, are pouring over. I know that uh, Paul Maurice was kind of making light of the fact that an identity column is, is stretched uh, out for a couple of days here, but, I mean, let's be completely honest. Uh, we're not sure what kind of team they're going to be. Neither are they. Uh, we do understand it's early in the year, small sample size, etc., but, I mean... I think there were some legitimate signs that the Jets were starting to turn the corner based on how they played leading up to Saturday night's 3-2 to two overtime win. Yet after that, they took, uh, I would say, a large step back against the Penguins and uh, a significant, you know, another step back uh, against the Coyotes. I mean, after a solid first period, uh, the Jets completely completely got away from their game and yes a ailing an ailing penalty kill was part of that Murad but I thought that they just simply got kind of outworked by a by a team that went into the game feeling that they had been playing well but had sort of some tough schedule losses themselves so I do think that obviously special teams were a factor but they weren't the only factor for me uh, in that game. I, I think that the Jets weren't nearly good enough five on five, and and that's something that we had seen some progress on in terms of this bunch. That their their five on five play had been improving compared to last year, especially in the second half. But they kind of got away from that uh, in the second half, and that was compounded by some uh, bad routes and, uh, and things like that that sort of impacted their defensive coverage. But uh, I mean, to me, sure. I mean, you can you can call a seven-two game a fatigue game, but um, for me, I mean, the Penguins are playing back-to-back also, and the Penguins have some significant injuries, especially among their forward group. So uh, I know that was filed under the reasons and not excuses, but 
I mean, I think that the fact, just the way that Blake answered the question uh, led us to believe that the Jets are still themselves trying to figure out how they're going to play. And, and to me, Murat, the bigger question for folks like you and I is what should the Jets look like in order for them to be a competitive team? And, and I'd like to know your thoughts on that. Well, because it's an interesting thing. I mean, I was in the room there with you, too, when you asked Blake Wheeler about identity. And he sort of thinks for a second and says, I don't know. I don't know is his answer. And and I wonder if this sort of conversation happens when you're uh, a bad team. And I, and I don't mean to paint the Jets with that label quite yet, but we're looking at a small sample size of the season and the Winnipeg Jets have given up the sixth most shots per minute at five on five, the seventh most goals per minute at five on five. Uh, whatever improvements have been made systemically aren't really showing up in terms of the overall defensive metrics. And when you hear Paul Maurice talk about defensive metrics, he credits the team for its hustle. Uh, he, he credits for its compete and its attitude. But he's not trying to sell us on the idea uh, that this is a defensive juggernaut by any stretch of the imagination. So I've always wondered to myself, when when words like identity get used, well, is a good team that's rolling over other uh, all of its opposition, whatever style it plays, does that automatically get anointed with the term, okay, they've got an identity and a culture? And does a team that loses, like we just watched those two back-to-back games, um, does that automatically bring the identity into question? And, and I struggle with that because um, another thing that Blake Wheeler said was that from day one of camp, it's been a hardworking group. And I agree with that. That's... It's one of the toughest arguments to make right now because the team hasn't looked good. It's back end in particular is where the, the struggle is. And at the same time, I genuinely think the hustle is there. The commitment is there, all of those sorts of things. And on paper, the just quality of the men who are being asked to play defense, it seems to me that it's all about one rung too high, except for Josh Morrissey, who's yet to take over. So I'm beginning to wonder, is this you know, have the coaching and the hustle and effort gotten the most out of this defense yet? Uh, and is it just about management and Buffalo and, and all those other sorts of things at this point? Yeah, it, it's interesting too. I mean, again, we're, we're way too early to, to draw many conclusions, but, and, and I do agree. I think, I think that this is a group that works, works hard. I mean, it just seemed like to me, there was a little bit more desperation from the Coyotes the other night. And I mean, that makes sense, but it's going to be interesting to see what direction this group goes. I mean, like I said, I mean, it looked like they might've been turning the corner here. I mean, they're thinking, man, they had already beaten the Penguins on the road. Now they're coming in on a back-to-back. But instead of going on this roll and winning four in a row and then maybe playing a Coyotes team that had been uh, still sort of searching for their footing, I mean, now they're now they're trying to avoid an early three game losing skid, and I mean I, I don't think there was any real concern or uh, you know there's certainly no panic among the Jets, nor should there be. But I, I think the 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 bigger broader questions are what is it going to take for this group to forge that identity? I mean we we know that I mean and Blake Wheeler mentioned it. I mean so did Paul Maurice. We know there are offensively gifted players in that lineup, but. At what point do the Jets get comfortable playing in one-goal games? I mean, we've talked about, uh, you know, boring hockey for the Jets, like those kind of grinded out two-to-one, three-to-two games. But, I mean, there haven't been as many of those signs. And 
In fact, the game where the Jets looked the least comfortable was the game against the Islanders on the road where they had a pretty good road period in the first and then totally kind of abandoned almost all of their principles in the second because the game kind of got to be a a short pass game and a physical game and, and all of those things. So, I mean, I'm very curious to see what, what the next few steps are here. I mean, yes, the Jets are uh, a step closer. Brian Little is not going to play against the Islanders, but that was more precaution. I would expect him on Sunday against the Oilers. But, I mean, for you, Murad, I mean, how much does the addition of, I mean, for for all the talk about Brian Little and whether or not he should be the, the second-line center in this team, I mean, what impact do you see him having on on a return, not just in terms of who he plays with, but what it does specifically to guys like Andrew Kopp and Adam Lowry, who I think I think that's a big part of their identity is how that line, the TLC line, has played in the past. And I think that getting those two together with whoever they play on the wing would be a step closer to helping the Jets get back to their type of identity game that they're searching for. Yeah, I, I think if you've listened to Paul Maurice over the past couple of years and watched him as we have, uh, he, he there's some certain philosophies that you see in his forward group. And Shifley and Wheeler carry the top line, and that line is expected to play against tough competition in almost all situations. That's a fact. And when the Jets have had a lot of success, it's because they've been able to roll out Lowry, Kopp, and Tan Armia at times uh, in sort of a matchup-heavy defensive capacity. If Brian Little comes back and takes that second-line center role on paper uh, between Ehlers and Connor, I think that line suddenly becomes a little bit... There's no such thing as completely sheltered in a top-nine situation, but I think that becomes your third line in terms of how important it is matchup-wise because all of a sudden Adam Lowry has help on his wings and Andrew Kopp and him can start up again that sort of dominant stretch they've enjoyed over the last couple of seasons against any and all comers. Uh, Jack Roslovic was telling me the other day, well, this isn't exactly the way I envisioned myself breaking into the league, but this is a good opportunity for me. Uh, And so that could be a matchup ready group for Paul Maurice to be able to use sort of in the philosophy that he's he's demonstrated over the last couple of seasons. Uh, That means Brian Little, presumably, I mean, he's not getting uh, eased in because he's got to keep up with Nick Ehlers and Kyle Connor but he might be able to avoid some of the toughest lifting and heaviest lifting uh, in terms of helping those guys drive play. Um, I I think that's a solid move. I I would have also been completely happy with Andrew Kopp on that second line and then Brian Little taking Kopp's role alongside Adam Lowry. Um, I think the coach is going with what they know. At the end of the day, though, I still think, um, like at five on five right now, the Jets aren't even one of the top teams in the they're not in the top half uh in, in terms of offense right now they've scored the 20th most goals uh per minute at five on five uh so it's not just about cutting down the goals against through that matchup that that cop lowry group is going to be able to offer uh, the team's got to find some offense too and i think some of that comes uh when when you start spending less time in the defensive zone and Man, I, I mean, Ken, you're probably getting sick of hearing me talk about this stuff, and fans are probably getting sick of the defense, the defense, the defense. But so many men are, are playing uh, a rung up the ladder higher than they're used to, and and it's showing with the amount of zone time that they're spending. Uh, without Connor Hellebuck, I actually think that this is a, a sub 500 team, which is crazy considering the first night that we were, we we can all remember. 
Sure. I mean, one of the obvious issues, I mean, they sorted out part of the special teams problems on uh, on Sunday night, or sorry, on uh, Tuesday with the power play uh, picking it up. And funny, that's things that we had talked about, about Kyle Connor needing to be dangerous uh, down low, even though sometimes he'd been used in the slot, but going back down low and finding a way to score with the nifty backhand shelf play off the goal line. I mean, what that, a goal. What that a goal. is the type of well, exactly. I mean, and what that is exactly what it's going to take in order for the opponent to start respecting the down low option, and that will open up the slot shot. I mean, Mark Scheifele had a couple of slot shots in the last game as well, and once they are able to, I think they need to also, for me, they need to generate a little bit more traffic. Obviously, there was more puck movement. Blake Wheeler touched on it himself. He got his own feet moving a little bit more and created a little bit more motion that created a few more opportunities as well, and but you need the threat of the Jets down low. Same as when Paul Stastny was there. You need that threat that you have to respect that more in order to, to open up some other windows. But deeper than that, uh, going into the year when we did our, our predictions, you talked about how you expected the penalty kill to continue to struggle. I mean, I know you've rewatched a lot of the, of the of the tape for other projects, but specifically to the penalty kill, what are the m- most glaring issues you've seen in a unit that is struggling at to the tune of 60 percent which is a number that boy oh boy that's it's we know it's among the lowest in the league but that's a number that needs to go up in a hurry in order for the jets to be competitive yeah absolutely the the penalty kill has absolutely been poor and and there's no way around that that They've given up the second most shots per minute in the league uh, at 79 shots per minute, or sorry, 79 shots per 60 minutes. They give up uh, well shorthanded this year. Uh, the worst team in the league last season was the Chicago Blackhawks and, and shorthanded. They gave up 63 shots per 60 minutes. So that's the, the Winnipeg Jets uh, are giving up more shots per minute by a mile than the worst team did last season and that's going to tighten up i'm not saying i'm not pointing that out to to say that uh that that's the way it's going to be all season long but what we've seen so far has been bad um and paul maurice mentioned shot blocks is one of the key issues there and and certainly that does come into it as well but if you if you zoom out and just look at shot attempts themselves as well um a lot of jets have been on the ice shorthanded for some pretty historic uh, shot attempt numbers as well. So that includes block shots and uh, as well. Same with uh, if you look at the unblocked shots. All of this to say they've given up a lot. And unfortunately for the Jets, the sort of two men that were coming in as forward specialists on the penalty kill, Mark Letestu and Gabriel Bork, well, their shots against rates are are actually higher than everybody else's on, on the Jets so far through this season. You've got Letestu on the ice for the most shots against on, on the Jets. Then you've got Neil Pionk. And then Gabriel Bork has been on the ice for the third most. So the specialists aren't getting it done. I, I think the unit is missing... Oh my goodness, I was just gonna about to say identity. But without Brandon Tanev, some of the shot blocking is gone. Uh, without some of the speed, again with, with Tanev, but also with Little, Connor, etc., if you're giving those minutes to, to Bork and Letestu, uh, you're not getting into lanes uh, in the first place to give yourself the opportunity to make the block, and then those blocks haven't been there either. Um, I, I think mostly, though, to me, it's a function of, of pressure, and the lack thereof, the, the team's being passive at the same time as giving up some more dangerous passes than it has in, in a long time. Um, 
I don't know if it's as simple as well. You know, if Truba and Bufflin were there, it would it would be cleaned up, or Myers and Bufflin uh, that would be cleaned up, um, or or if it's something a little bit more insidious for the Jets. But it's just too many shots from too many good locations, and the players brought in ostensibly to be responsible in that particular regard haven't had the results, and uh, I don't know what it takes to to move that forward. The one thing I'll say is a as a a little bit of a light is that Mason Appleton's uh, performance in that regard has been in the sort of Andrew Kopp and Adam Lowry tier uh, of uh, of shot rates and and sort of the metrics as opposed to Latestu and and Bork. So it's it's possible that the next generation, whether it's Appleton or if you can bring uh, Kyle Connor and, and Brian Little into this mix or Jack Roslovic as years go by as well, um, that these sort of younger, faster players getting more minutes might be uh, a way to get a, an uptick in that direction. That's that's what I've been seeing yeah. so far. And I, and I like the idea of Appleton getting more time there. And I would even also include David Gustafson. Obviously, he's just got his one game under his belt with his NHL debut and just under six minutes. But for me, this this is the type of role where Gustafson needs to be involved. In. I mean, the four, five on five ice time for a fourth line has been difficult to come by for a Jets team that's been chasing a lot of games. But Gustafson has that skill set that we're talking about and the anticipation and all those things and ability to pick up systems. So I understand why Paul Maurice maybe wouldn't want to, uh, you know, overcomplicate things going into his first game. But I mean, for me, I think that it's a natural to get him involved in the, in the penalty kill, uh, you know, not necessarily on the first unit, but uh, I mean, I, I think that he could be involved easily in the, the third unit or the second unit, depending on how much time they're still trying to shave off of Mark Shifley and, and Blake Wheeler. But I, I think that's a, a natural place to go. I mean, I think that for sure the Jets need to be, you need confidence in order to apply pressure in, in a penalty killing situation. But uh, it's certainly, they're going to need to pick up their pace when it comes to that. And I mean, sure, shot block is part of that, but I mean, your anticipation needs to be there and you got to pressure guys. I mean, not only were they not pressuring, but the last couple of games when they were having trouble, I mean, they're they're not close, they're not sealing the front of the net very well, and so if you're not getting into the lanes, then you need your coverage to be better. And I think the Jets' coverage just simply hasn't been uh, good enough. I mean, the Dvorak goal for me is a good example. I mean, some element of bad fortune for Josh Morrissey when he's trying to scoop it out, but clear lane for Kessel. And if the lane is clear, then you got to be able to seal the the guys in front. So. I'll be curious to see where they go from there uh, in terms of their penalty kill for sure. Yeah, I, I'm not sure who's going to be the the exceptional crease clearer on this uh, on this Jets team right now. I mean, uh, that Morrissey goal was one example, uh, but also even uh, you know bigger, stronger men like an Anthony Bettetto has been caught sort of just on the wrong side of coverage uh, in the low slot. Uh, it's been an issue for Dmitry Kulikov at times. Some of the guys who have the physical tools to kind of get the job done uh, haven't shown that read and that instinct that you were talking about as well. Um, so I'm not I'm not sure the way forward. I, I did want to go back to Gustafson because that's a great point. I mean, if you're going to develop a player, okay, maybe you're you're trying to provide him some shelter at, at five on five, and and especially with the Jets' forward depth, I mean, certainly that's it, it's easy to justify that sort of thing. Um, however, you you hear about players breaking into the league, playing sort of third or fourth line minutes at even strength, and getting first or second power play time. Um, is there any strategic or theoretical reason not to try the same on the penalty kill because some of those reads the whole game's in front of you you don't um 
it, it almost strikes me as one of the more manageable, organized, structured forms of, of NHL gameplay. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you certainly know what your job is. And I mean, I think it's just a matter of probably getting up to speed uh, in terms of Gustafson. Obviously, he had been eager to get in um, before game eight, but I think that that's such a good place for him. I mean, he's been compared to Adam Lowry at times, uh, maybe a slightly less physical version, but a guy who's got a mature body and a mature brain. And I mean, even Paul Maurice uh, yesterday mentioning the late uh, Josef Vasacek, I mean, as a, as a comparable and a good example of a guy who uh, came into Carolina after being an OHL captain, and the plan had always been to send him back. But lo and behold, the guy just kept giving you a reason to keep him around. And then all of a sudden, when he gets into the lineup, well, th- now you know that he can play. I mean, he showed some great signs in the preseason, and I thought he carried a lot of those things over into his debut. I mean, yes, because the Jets were down, he only had uh, just under six minutes instead of eight or ten. But I think he's a guy that is going to grow on Paul Maurice the more that he sees him. And I, and I think he's been, again, we, we, we can't lose sight of the fact that I think he, he's impressed him enough to stick around. I mean, going into training camp, the Jets are always keeping an open mind, sure. But if you're placing bets down, the bet would be that Gustafsson would already be back in Sweden playing. But instead, he's still sticking around. And I mean, we know there is some uncertainty surrounding uh, what is ailing Mark Letestu and that whenever you hear that other tests are required, I mean, well, you just don't know how long this is going to be. And we've talked so much about the Jets' center depth. Yes, they have players who have played center that are on the wing, but I mean, if Letestu misses any length of time, there is a a significant opportunity for a guy like Gustafson to make an impact uh, in his role, whatever it would be. And, and I would suggest that it's a smarter idea to get him more involved in the penalty kill uh, because that's an area for sure that I think that a guy that is mature enough in terms of his development and way he processes information, I think that not only could he hold water in that kind of a job, I think he can flourish. I mean, this is a guy that's always had that defensive responsible side of the game to him. And sure, the Jets want to see him develop his offensive game, which is why ultimately he probably will head back eventually. But I mean, it's going to be up to him to see how he handles this next little little stretch of ice time. And the fact that he was going to be staying in regardless of whether or not Brian Little was back in time for the Islander game, that to me says all we need to know about uh, what Paul Maurice thinks of Gustafson. But again, you really got to look at the long-range forecast and ultimately it'll be up to the player to to force his way into the mix on a regular basis because, as we know, like the Jets just don't have... Yes, CJC says has shown some signs, but they don't have a ton of uh, elite-tier prospects down on the moose that are knocking on the door at the center position. So that sort of gives Gustafson a leg up to, to A, stick around, and B, show what he can do in that type of a role. Yeah, it's funny to look at a 4-4 four and four team, and uh, I've really just harped on the negative sorts of things so far on, on my end of this conversation, but David Gustafson has been an absolute bright light in terms of sort of coming from, like you say, it'd be so easy to have sent him to Sweden by now. Um, I'm also not above a little bit of sentimentality when it comes to sports. When I when I hear him talking about uh, how his parents sort of broke down into tears each when he got his chance to play in his first game, I I think that means a lot, and uh, I think that's a that's a great story. And when he talks about his rookie lap and same with Vila Hanela as well, um, th- those are some real bright spots for the team going forward. Um, 
One of the other things, uh, and forgive me even more sentimentality, but when we're up in the press box and we're watching a game and there's a whistle, um, one of the things that I, I just can't help but look away from the computer or the um, or the ice for is when they show up all these like like four or five, six-year-old kids dancing with their parents, having fun at the game, and maybe they're doing the world's most terrible uh, version of the dab or the whatever dance they're doing at the time, but they're just so innocent and in, they're enjoying their the game as much as possible. Um, this is my segue into thinking about how those seats weren't all full the last time that we were there. Um, so I appreciate, I, I love getting lost in the joy of the fans and everything like that. Um, is there anything at all to make of this non-sellout by the Winnipeg Jets? Yeah, I mean, it's a fair question, and uh, it's one that I don't think the answer will be entirely clear uh, for the next little bit of a stretch. I mean, that was a long stretch of sellouts, um, including the playoffs. I think you could sort of see that the day was coming. There would be the odd open seat and or whatever else, but uh, I mean, I think that the, the ticket prices have continue to go up. I mean, that's the cost of doing business to have a National Hockey League team, but I think that there is still an element of that long playoff run. I know it was only two seasons ago, but I think the fact that Jets went to the conference final, uh, that ended up taking a bit of a financial toll on a lot of the season ticket holders. And also, I mean, to a degree, people that were not season ticket holders or part of a package or whatever else. I mean, th those were premium prices being paid in the second and third rounds. And uh, I think what you hear is that, I mean, it's more difficult now for people to get rid of their seats. If they, if they can't go to, you know, all 41, naturally, it's difficult for anyone to, to go through that sort of thing. I mean, I don't think it means the passion is waning in the community, but I mean, tickets are much more readily available right now. And uh, I mean, it is a. It, it's got to be a. I mean, a cause for some concern. I don't. I don't know that it's a red flag per se, but uh, I do think that it would be something that would have caught the attention of the folks at True North. And I mean, what what their next move is? I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's not going to be a, a drastic reduction in ticket prices because there were uh, whatever it was, 700 unsold seats or whatever it was. But I mean, it's certainly going to be something to monitor moving forward. I mean this is a team that doesn't want to be in the 14,000s in terms of attendance or, or lower than that by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, let's see if it's a one-off or if it's uh, something that uh, that carries forward. I mean, the other the other part of the, uh, you know, thing that came out this week with attendance is that there were some non-sellouts in other markets that are have been historically, you know, Montreal is the, you know, them in Montreal. Montreal and Toronto would be the epicenter of of, uh, of hockey in Canada, for sure. And the fact that, I mean, yes, I totally understand that Montreal has a lot more seats to sell than Winnipeg, but, I mean, that was a that was a bit of a surprise to me also that, that Montreal was uh, was not full that other night and that Toronto had the only sellout. That's pretty amazing. Actually, yeah, I agree with you there. And it's, it's funny. I mean, time and a little bit more context will sort of give, you know, what the truth of the situation is. Because if you want to just start throwing things around, well, okay, well, we have the 
uh, you know, a, a less impressive on-ice product than that conference finals or recent teams would be. Uh, now we have the Winnipeg Ice in town. The the Bombers are having a stronger season. All of these other sorts of things. But, I mean, that's a, that's a lot to just start throwing around when you look around the league and see that Montreal's not sold out otherwise and um, and other teams as, as well. So uh, I'm not going to start pretending I have any insight or, or guesses as to that. And like you say, time will tell. Um, but it's still the first one in my short career that I've observed. And so it's something, it just like tweaks in the back of your mind and you start wondering about that. So, um, fans, if you're listening to this right now, by all means, shoot us the DMs and messages and let us know what you think on the comment section of our various articles, because you're the ones who go and you're the ones whose passion the whole system is, is built off of. Um, Winnipeg's next home game, well, that's coming up right tonight against the New York Islanders. If you want to have a quick preview of what it's like from the Islanders' point of view, you can check out No Sleep Till Belmont. That's another one of the athletic NHL podcasts with Arthur Staple and former Islander Mark Parrish. Uh, next game after that is at home to the Edmonton Oilers, and you can check out The Oil Can with Alan Mitchell, Jonathan Willis, and Daniel Nugent Bowman, uh, the three-named man completing the uh, three-pronged Oil Can podcast as well. So if you're looking for context about how other teams are doing, by all means, check it out there. Ken, there is one note about shot blocking that I just, this is such a minutia thing that I, I, I can't shake myself from looking into a little bit. And you were in the room the other day when the comment came up that, okay, well, Winnipeg's not blocking shots on the penalty kill. And okay, that's that's a, a will thing, or that's a no Brandon Tanev thing, or I'm not sure exactly what that is, but certainly that would need to get better. But then the thought that, as Paul Marie suggested, and he wasn't committing to this because he didn't have it in front of him, that maybe teams blocked more shots as they got older. Um, I really can't find any kind of correlation that that sells that fact. And uh, as a matter of fact, I think that the shot block numbers that you look at at the end of the season for each team, they don't seem to correlate with wins or losses or anything like that either. I mean, if you look at the top 10 shot block teams from last season, uh, five of them made the playoffs, five of them, five of them didn't. You've got teams leading the league like the Ottawa Senators, and maybe they blocked the most shots because they had the most opportunities to block the most shots because they were in their end the most. And uh, you have teams like the Colorado Avalanche, who had some success, Arizona, who didn't as much, et cetera, down the lineup. Um, the thinking in the analytics community is certainly that shot blocks are one of those things that are a function of opportunity. If you're blocking a lot of shots, it means you're stuck in your own zone quite a lot. It's kind of like the opposite of giveaways. We look at an individual giveaway as a as a bad thing, and it certainly is. But by the end of the season, teams that give the puck away the most tend to be teams that had the puck the most or, or who have players who tend to have possession a lot as well. So um, same thing with hits on the, on the defensive end. Uh, hitting is good. Hitting separates people from the puck. Hitting is a huge part of hockey, and, and certainly intimidation is a factor as well. But at the end of the day, to make a hit, you have to not have the puck to start that play. And, and so at the end of the season, hit numbers as well tend to correlate with teams that aren't necessarily that great defensively. Now, I'm not using any of this to say an argument for don't block the shot or don't make the hit when there's an opportunity there. Uh, but it's just something I couldn't help but sort of investigate a little bit more. And, uh, you know, if only half of the uh, shot block leaders in the NHL or playoff teams in any given year, then I I'm not sure that there's too much to that. And so my question for you, is that just a, a, a case of a spreadsheet kid leaning too hard on spreadsheets and, and too far away from blood, sweat and tears? Or, or, or what do you make of it? 
Yeah, for me, Murata, I understand those are all valid points, but uh, I think that it goes deeper than just the shot blocking element itself. I think you have to make it a deterrent if you're a penalty killer. Even if you're not getting the block shot, the fact that they weren't getting enough shot lanes, I think that was the deeper issue that Maurice was talking about. I think it's natural in a week where Nicholas Jalmerson breaks his leg that there would be questions about our players maybe less or a little more hesitant to block shots knowing the the type of impact and injury that can have in that regard but i think it's maurice was t- digging deeper it wasn't just about the fact they only had four block shots which was poor in itself but there needs to be a deterrent i mean you need to be able to be in the shot lane to to you know uh discourage the shot attempt not necessarily you know, the team's not going to bang it in the shin pads if you know the shin pads are there all the time just for the sake of trying to scare the opponent. So I think, again, that goes back to the reads themselves and being quicker and, and getting into those shot lanes deeper than necessarily. I don't think that Paul Maurice is asking his uh, his team to be a, a group that is going to be among the league leaders in shot uh, shot blocks. I mean, he even referenced that uh, the other day as well. So, But I think they need to make it a deterrent. I mean, that's, that, that's, that's the bigger issue, like the, the getting into the shot lane rather than uh, you know, laying out sprawling, as you mentioned, the, the Shea Weber shot, you're not going to be laying out, uh, you know, with a lot of regularity there, but you need to be, have there to be a deterrent and make it a little bit more difficult to get the shot through, which is what kind of led to a couple of those, uh, well, both the uh, Coyotes goals specifically, the second one was a great screen by Soderbergh, but the larger issue is why did Nick Schmaltz, A, have all of the time to make that shot, and B, why was there no one clearing the front of the net where Soderberg was so uh, aptly delivering the screen? Yeah, I, I think that I can get behind that. And, and it's about taking the opportunity to put the pressure on and force uh, force the player to make a decision. And, and maybe if the shin pad's in the way, then uh, make the decision to pass off or, or, or move into a less dangerous position. And uh, when Schmaltz has all that kind of time and, and, and space, uh, obviously he's going to do something dangerous with it. I'm curious to see what the bounce back is like from the PK because right from the opening power play the other night, and Blake Wheeler spoke to this at the end of the game, but right from the opening power play, you could tell he was moving his feet. And it was an observation we made in the press box uh, right from his first possession. He was he was attacking a little bit more, and it almost looked like he was, uh, I'm going to give this a leading by example sort of situation where he was demonstrating the pace that, that the team needed to have. Um, now, he does PK a little bit, uh, but it's it's not necessarily a whole pile of letter wetters amongst the Jets forwards on the PK. So I'm wondering uh, who can who can make the the first step forward, and maybe that's Josh Morrissey in front of the net. Maybe that's leaning hard on Cop uh, and Lowry, or or maybe Brian Little uh, when he gets back into it is going to get a big role there as well. Um, that's something I'm definitely curious about. It's to me about taking the opportunity when it's presented to get into that lane. And maybe that is something that the the Jets need to improve upon. Um, there yeah, is, no doubt about that. There is one um, one piece of prospective good news making its way uh, into Winnipeg Jets land, and that starts with Darren Dreger's report that uh, Dustin Bufflin's camp has just a little bit more optimism these days. Uh, Ken, what does that mean? Where, where does how does that happen to to become a report? What what can fans take away from the current Dustin Bufflin situation? Because fishing season it has uh, changed, and and ice fishing season isn't isn't quite here yet. I I feel like it might be time to to dig more into the Bufflin situation. Yeah, no, and that, and that's certainly fair. Uh, I mean, I think that 
I mean, I did, was able to speak with Ben Hankinson briefly. Uh, I mean, he's kept with his stance that he doesn't want to speak publicly. This is Dustin's questions to answer, even though he's certainly currently not available to answer any of them. But uh, because it's a personal decision and confidential and private in nature, uh, he declined comment. But I think what we can draw from, from the report itself and from, you know, just based on the fact that when you're dealing with a player that has been away from the game and not been on the ice, uh, you know, now since September, I think some of the things that would be happening would be this, you know, into October and then into November, if it if it gets that far, uh, this would be the time of year when a player starts missing being around the rink. And, I mean, you talked about joy during stoppages in play. I mean, nobody exudes joy during stoppages in play more than Dustin Bufflin. So, I mean, now it's been another month or whatever for his ankle to have gotten closer to healing. Uh, I think, you know, from the beginning, what we've talked about, I think the fact that he had, I mean, yes, I know he had the concussion from that massive collision with Jamie Alexiak, but I don't think that there's any lingering effects that Dustin is dealing with on that front. But the fact that he had those two separate ankle injuries, A, from the first collision with Luke Cunnan, uh, where his ankle just sort of went into an awkward position and just shouldn't do that in a hockey boot. And B, when he went for the tight turn and it was involved with Miko Ranton and he got kind of his feet kind of crossed up and that led to a fracture. I mean, I mean, Dustin's a big man, obviously, and, and, and ankle injuries are challenging for anyone. So I think the fact that now there's been another month of uh, prospective healing, um, I mean, even players who love hockey, training camp is not a super fun time of the year. There's a lot of uh, conditioning skates and testing and extra fitness and all those things that are going on. So, I mean, now when you get into late October and early November, now you're getting closer to the point where you would be missing. I'm not saying that Dustin is missing hockey. I assume that this would be the time that if he were going to miss hockey and think about coming back, this would be the time where it starts to kind of build in you where you're thinking, you know, it's been great to take my kids to school and spend some extra time at home and do some fishing and hunting and and some of those activities that you don't get to do a lot during the season. I would think that now is around the time where a guy like Bufflin would start thinking about missing being around the room, being around the guys, going on a road trip. Uh, you know, even there's probably an element of Dustin that, probably would love to have that feeling of a either going end to end on a rush b unloading a crazy one-timer slap shot for a goal or c uh running an opponent through the end boards i mean uh, i'm not trying to be harsh or crass but for a guy who plays a physical game uh that body contact is becomes part of your life i mean dustin's not out there trying to hurt people but there's a certain type of feeling that goes along with with all three of those items. And the other part of that is the, to me, I think is the adulation element where, I mean, you can do a lot of things in life, but when you're a pro athlete, you are going to experience certain things, whether it's winning or personal accolades and success. It's hard to find those elements and replicate or duplicate them in your everyday life, no matter how extraordinary a life you may live. Um, and sure, uh, getting a trophy fish out of the water, I'm sure would be exhilarating to a degree, but 
not to the same degree as having 15 to 20,000 people chant your nickname or scream at the top of their lungs for an extraordinary on-ice feat. So, uh, I mean, again, we've said it from the beginning. If Dustin Buffin comes back, it's not for the $8 million salary, even though I'm sure that will be nice to pad someone's bank account. He's made enough money that I don't think it's a concern for him. But I think that part of the allure of Dustin, if he does decide to come back, would be that element that that you being a, a beloved player and uh, I mean that roar of the crowd is something you hear about from all kinds of players who have retired whether they retired on their own terms or left the game early or or whatever it ends up being but but for me those would be sort of things that that could help lead him back um, but the other thing I always say about Dustin I mean the one thing that that regular fans or, or even everyday people that maybe don't even love hockey maybe don't realize is that Dustin Bufflin is not defined by his job as a hockey player. Yes, he loves hockey, and when he's there, he, he can do some outstanding things, and, and I think that there would be an element of that you would eventually come to miss that part of it. But hockey doesn't define him. So, I mean, the fact that it would, it would seem odd for many people, uh, including some of us in the media, that how could a guy walk away at 34 years old when he still has something to give? But... I mean, if you're not defined by hockey, I mean, hockey's his job, yes, but it's not something that Dustin would be saying, I can't get by without hockey. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that there are some elements of the game that that cause a bit of an intoxication in terms of how how you can feel, uh, you know, when, when people are roaring your name or, you know, pointing out some kind of good that you've done. So, I mean, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see if that, that is something that, if it weighs on him at all. I mean, and that's something that a lot of times players maybe don't realize until down the road how much they miss it but um and I also think too I mean even though Dustin Dustin played well in the playoffs even though I don't think that he was fully healthy uh I think there is still an element of I mean for lack of a better term some unfinished business and I think that that he has more to give to the game but I mean whether or not he decides to go through with that I mean that that's something that I expect we'll find out in the next you know let's say several weeks to a month and change well in our bold predictions uh, one of them that i committed to was that he would come back um maybe not for a good long while and uh sort of i'm still holding out hope that i get to check that one off at some point in the season <laughs> I, I think there's a really interesting sort of theme that came out in what you were saying is that there are competing realities here i mean uh, a guy that gets some of the most joy from hockey that you'll ever see but for whom hockey doesn't define him as a human being. Um, the, the idea that, um, that there are certain feelings he can get, and whether it's the k- physical competition on the ice, uh, that, that most of us will never know what that feeling is like. Most of us will never have to figure out what the emotions of pulling two human beings, one in each hand out of a scrum, and then having your name chanted uh, will, will feel like and, and how what it feels like to miss that at the same time. And then the fact that he's such an easygoing, affable human being, and then put him in a media scrum and he's clearly that's the least favorite place that he, he wants to be. Uh, the situation is taking his personality in a way to me and that there's uh, there's some contradictions and some, some, uh, some paradox to it as well. Um, that would be the end of part one of episode three of The Boarding Pass. 
for Ken Weeb, I'm Radatesh. Thank you for listening. Make sure to hit that subscribe. Let us know what you think. Tweet at us. Hit the comment section at The Athletic. Otherwise, have yourself a great day.